0: This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Turn with me to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, as we continue our walk through the book of Psalms, Uh, we come this morning to what I would imagine is a bit of an unfamiliar psalm uh, to many of us. It wasn't one that's been super familiar to me, uh, but I believe God has something special to say to us through it this morning. You know that feeling when you you see somebody maybe you haven't seen in a while, and you just very casually and matter-of-factly, thoughtlessly just say, how are you doing? And then surprisingly, they tell you. And you weren't expecting it? You just say, hey man, what's up? It's good to see you. You doing all right? And then they say, well, actually, I'm glad you asked. I'm, I'm not doing all right. I uh, lost my job. My wife just left me and my dog got ran over by a car. And you think to yourself, well, I didn't, I wasn't going there. Like I was just kind of saying, hey. Matter of fact, I said that in the first service and a guy came after me and he goes, hey, I want you to know that guy is me. I lost my job, my wife left me, and she took the dog. And he said, I just want you to know, you're not just talking, this is real. But it's kind of a surprising and shocking feeling because most of the time we just say how you're doing and we don't mean it at all. And then when somebody tells us we're a little bit shocked, it's kind of that feeling you get when you're having a kind of a casual conversation, talking about the weather, just circumstances. And then someone decides that this is the moment for them to take it to the next level and they go really deep and really serious and you are not expecting that at all. Well, that little feeling we get in those moments is exactly what I felt at the beginning of the week every time I read Psalm 44. It starts so happy and so encouraging. And I have to tell you, having walked through a bunch of these psalms with you on Sunday morning, I was really ready for a happy psalm. We've had a lot of people in the psalms discouraged and despondent and downcast and wondering where is God. And I thought, oh, this is awesome. I read the first few verses of Psalm 44 and I said, finally, a happy psalm. Everybody's encouraged. And right as I was feeling encouraged, the conversation turns to despair once again in a really shocking and surprising way. This psalm really does go from everything's great, God is good, and we're rejoicing in the Lord forever, to a place that is surprisingly honest and vulnerable and raw. But the more I begin to study Psalm 44 and kind of try to discern what it's about, what I realized is this. Psalm 44 is really just an honest expression of a common dilemma. It's just an honest expression of a common dilemma. Psalm 44 is about those moments in our life in which our circumstances don't seem to fit with our theology. Now, all of us have a theology. You may not be able to articulate it very clearly, but a theology is just a view of God. All of you have a certain understanding of how God works and why God does what he does and how God feels about you and what he thinks about you. Everyone has a theology, maybe a good one or a bad one, but we all have one. What I've discovered is that many times in the church, people find themselves in a situation that they don't know how to process because it doesn't fit with their view of God. And those moments not only are difficult and hard and often overwhelming, most of all, those situations are just confusing, it's confusing when you find yourself in a situation that is hard and difficult, you're going through a season of suffering or questions, and you just don't know how to process that in light of what you believe about God when those two things don't go together, leads to a really confusing situation. And because every one of us has those seasons in which our current circumstance don't seem to make much sense, we need Psalm forty four. So let's look at Psalm 44 together. If you are in the pavilion or in the room this morning and you're at Psalm 44, say amen. I'm doing that for you and for those really cold in the pavilion. Trying to make sure you're all awake this morning. Listen to these words of Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, our fathers, you... Planted. You afflicted the peoples, but you set them free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And feel the emotion of verse eight. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. And then a bit of a heavy and surprising and awkward transition. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have given spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, verse 17. All of this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back and nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you, you've broken us as in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spreaded our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There's no way for us to know the context exactly in which Psalm 44 was written, but the situation is clear. And we can look back to the Old Testament and find multiple situations like this. But even without that, the situation seems clear. This is the people writing as a nation and they're reflecting upon all of the good things that God has done. They look past to their forefathers and realize really good things have happened. Then they think to their own life and they think really good things have happened and everything seems to be going well. They're walking with the Lord. God is with us. He is for us. We're seeing all kinds of victories Then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, in a completely unexpected way, everything seems to change. The seasons change. And this season isn't as fun as the last season. But the issue that they're facing and struggling with is not just that this season is hard and that they're being taunted and that they're being rejected and laughed at. And it's not even the season of uh, the sense of God withdrawing himself from them. The greater challenge is the confusion of why this is happening. It just doesn't make sense to them at all. Because the reality is, is this situation didn't match up with what they thought about God. And that becomes incredibly clear as they express their thoughts to God. It begins in those first few verses talking about what God has done for their forefathers. It says, God, we've heard with our ears. Our fathers told us. Exactly what Deuteronomy 6 has told us, that it is the responsibility of one generation to declare the good deeds to the next generation. So older generation, your work is not done until God chooses to take you home. And the most important part of your work, listen, the most important part of your work is to make sure the next generation understands the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. We were talking this week as a staff about what it means and what it looks like to build children on a solid foundation that prepares them for the future. And we discovered as we talked that there are four pillars that withhold a foundation for a good godly child. We realized children need virtues, children need verses, children need doctrine, and children need stories. They need stories. We don't just tell the stories in Sunday school because they're good to tell and they're exciting. We tell the stories because you need to have an awareness of what God has done in the past and then an awareness that that same God is alive and well today, amen? And so it is, their fathers told them the deeds that God had performed. And one of the things they made sure everyone understood is that all the supernatural things God has done, he did. Not because the people deserved it, but because he's good and gracious. God, with your own hand, you drove out the nations, but you planted us. God, you brought affliction upon the people, but you set us free. And it wasn't by our sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but you did it, God. Your right arm and your right hand and the light of your face. And why did God do it? This is very important because they're building a theology here in verse three. Why did God do all of the things? For he delighted in them. God loved them, he delighted in them, and because he delighted in them, he did all these wonderful things for them. But I love the transition in verses four and eight because it's one thing to talk about what God did for Joshua and what God did for Moses and what God did for David. It's another thing to have your own stories, isn't it? And I would say one of the things, the most important things an older generation can do is tell the young generation what God has done in their life personally, how they have seen God move. But it says this, it kind of transitions. God, you are my king and ordained salvation for Jacob. All of a sudden we see this transition from they to we. Verse five, through you, we also push down our foes. Joshua's not the only one that did it. We did it too. And through your name, we tread down those who rise against us. For not my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But God, you saved us from our foes. You put to shame those who hate us. And I love this feeling in verse 8, God, we boast about you continually. To boast means to praise, but even more than praise, to declare the praise of the Lord, to brag. God, we want to brag on you. We want to boast in you. You've done incredible things for us. So God, we give you the glory. We don't hesitate to go into the sanctuary out on the streets and talk about all the good things God has done. And then I love this. In God, in verse 8, we are going to give thanks to your name forever. That is, at least until the next verse. God, forever, we're never going to stop boasting about the Lord. We're never going to stop giving thanks because you have done incredible things for us. And they're starting to think about this little theology. And it seems to go something like this, that God delights in us. And because God delights in us, he gives us victory. And when God gives us victory, we then praise him and give him thanks. That's really the story of verses 1 through 8. God who loves us does incredible things for us and we give him the praise. But The problem is, is their circumstances quickly changed. And when their circumstances changed, it messed up with their logic. It messed up their theology. They couldn't figure out how to deal with this present suffering in light of what they had always believed was the way that God worked. Look at how the tone it changes. I, I circled all of the accusatory use in verses nine through 16. It's some heavy accusations for those who just said they would thank God and praise him forever. God, you rejected us and disgraced us. That's a heavy statement. God, you didn't go out with our armies. You made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. God, you made us like a sheep for the slaughter and you scattered us among the nations. L- listen to the heaviness of verse 12. Look at that. God, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding not a high price for them. God, you sold us. And you, you didn't even ask much. You, ju- you just took the first bidder, no matter how much the money was, and, and, and you just sold us. Like you, you just let someone else have us, not even demanding a high price, meaning we didn't even have any real value to you. You just, you just sold us off. Just, you garage-sailed us. It says this, you made us a taunt for the neighbors in derision and scorn. You made us a byword. Listen to verse 14. You made us a laughing stock. Everyone is making fun of us. We, we had the victory and now we're a laughing stock to everyone. And all day long my disgrace is before me. Shame covers my face. I hear the sound of those taunting me and reviling me and I see the sight of the enemy and the avenger. They're all around me. Now, the reality is, is that they're They're really a bit mad and confused. They're mad at why God has allowed them in this situation and they're deeply confused. And the worst part is this. The confusion grows worse when they think about how they've walked with the Lord. I mean, this really messes up their theology. I mean, look at the the following verses in verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we didn't forget you. What he's saying is this, God, we would understand if you let us be destroyed by our enemies and you brought all kinds of hardship in my life. If we had failed you and we had not walked according to your covenant and we have been idolaters, but God, we, we didn't forget you. We were faithful. You told us to walk with you and we did it. And then here's what we get. Look at this. It says we didn't be false to your covenant. Our hearts didn't turn back. Our steps didn't depart from your way. We believed right. We walked right. As much as any of us can possibly be blameless, what they're saying is they were blameless. Yet, even when we were faithful, look at verse 19, you broke us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Now, verse 20 is incredible. So God, if we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, you would have noticed it. God, if we did this, if we rejected you, we understand you would have noticed that and you would have punished us for that. But God, for your sake, we're just killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, the reason they're so mad and the reason they're so confused is because they didn't figure out how to navigate this circumstance. Because remember, their theology had gone something like this. God loves me. He delights in me. He's for me. And because of that, I experience good days and all of his blessing and his favor and victory. And because of that, I rejoice and celebrate. I give praise to the Lord. But if that's our theology, then what do we do when that middle part changes? I believe that God was for me and I believe that God was with me and yet I was defeated. What do I do with the first part? Because the reality is that their theology here is exposed and it goes something like this, if all of our victories and all of our good moments were because God was for us and loved us, then certainly our bad moments and our difficult moments must because God doesn't love us and is against us. You see, the reason they're battling so much is because they can't figure out what happened and how God has turned against them. They didn't have a way to process this difficult season because it wasn't a part of their logic. It wasn't a part of their theology. And they didn't change. They remained faithful. They remained obedient, but their circumstances dramatically changed. And they really believed that as long as they stayed walking with God, everything was going to be good. But all of a sudden, they stayed walking with God and nothing seemed good. So, what do you do in those moments? Well, look at what they did in verses 23 to 26. They assumed that God was sleeping. So awake, God. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself and do not reject us. So they're convinced in this moment because things weren't going well, God rejected them. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Because things aren't going well, God's forgotten them. Look at verse 25. For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Can we just... Stop with the poetic language for a minute and just realize what's happening here. What he's saying is this. The only way your soul can be in the dust and your belly to the ground is if the person writing this is laying flat on the ground before the Lord, completely confused by the current circumstances, having no idea how to process this, and convinced that because of their suffering, God has turned against them, and they can't do anything but to lay on their face and cry out for God to wake up. He says this, rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So they've come to this conclusion that God has rejected them, that God is against them, that God is ignoring them, or that God is asleep. And if their theology is something like this, God loves me and delights in me, therefore he gives me the victory, and I praise him, then they're going to find themselves in this moment when life is not going according to they think the way that it should go. You see, they don't have any formula. They don't have any way to process a season of suffering. They don't have any way to process a season of difficulty. It doesn't fit in with their theology that if we walk with God, everything goes well. And listen to me, truthfully, most Christians have the same theology that they had in Psalm 44. Man, if I walk with Jesus, and I'm doing well, God's gonna pour out his blessing, things are gonna go with me, and I'm gonna praise him. And then the moment something happens that doesn't fit with the way that we think life should go, a season of suffering, a season of disappointment, a diagnosis, a betrayal, we don't know how to process it because it doesn't fit with what we believe about God. And what you do in that moment is gonna determine the trajectory of the rest of your life because you will have those moments. You will have the moments of suffering. You will have the moments of confusion. And if it does not find itself grounded and rooted in something better than a casual, half-hearted, thoughtless theology, you won't make it through those times. And I was just, I was really stopped by verses 24 and 25 this week when it says, why do you hide your face and why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground, and the reason I felt that is because I've been there. Like, I can think about a couple of very specific moments in my life in which I found myself in the middle of the night, on my face, before God, in the carpet, absolutely angry with the situation that God had brought me through. And it is amazing to me how quickly we can turn on God. I mean, the first eight verses, God, you're so good, man. We're going we're gonna to bless you. We're going to boast forever, we're, forever. We're never going to stop thanking you. And in a moment, as quickly as Psalm 44 turns, we also can turn. So what's going on, God? Where are you? What have you ever done for me? You're the one that has put me in this situation. You don't love me. Or can, we can turn that quickly. I think one of the reasons Psalm 44 is written the way it is is to show us a picture of our own soul who can give so much praise to God when things are going good and then so much accusation to God when things aren't going the way they think that we think they should. Now, there are a lot of psalms that are like this. We've, we've looked at them over the past few weeks. But the thing we always have going for us is that almost every one of these psalms resolves itself. It ends with, but God is good. I mean, let's just move backward to the last few psalms. Psalm 43 and 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise you, my salvation and my God. Chapter 41. All of this about the Lord feeling that he is against us. And then it says this. But blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 40. About all of the evil that have encompassed me. God, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. You see, most of these psalms are just kind of this outpouring of frustration with God, but they always come to a resolution. But God is good, and I'm going to praise him again. Not Psalm 44. Psalm 44 ends with the same confusion that it begins with. Psalm 44 Ends with the sense of, I don't know what to do with the circumstances that God has me in. It just ends there with God asleep. Rise up, come to our help. It ends with the guy face down in the carpet, his belly to the ground, no way to process his current circumstance. So let's close in prayer. I mean, that's bad, isn't it? Like, that's why I'm trying to prepare a sermon. I'm going, there's got to be another verse here somewhere. The Psalm 45 go with it? Like, I'm, I'm real, like, I'm, it, like, in the Hebrew, is there something that was skipped here? There's got, like, there's nothing. Like, it just ends confused. The problem is, is what do we do in these moments? I mean, I'm thankful for Psalm 44 as it is because it, it does let us know that we have a propensity towards this. If our theology isn't right, we're going to struggle in suffering, but, but what, what's the hope? What's the answer? The reality is, is there's a clue for us. And the clue is found in Romans chapter eight. So buckle up and turn to Romans chapter eight as we find the solution for these moments. How do we navigate the confusion of our current hardship and suffering not matching up with what we think about God, okay? Look at this. Paul has been building his own theology deeply rooted in the truth of God's word. He's writing so that we might have a depth of understanding of theology of who God is. For eight chapters, he's been building this case for who God is and what he has done for me. He has reminded us that we have been justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You're saved not because of anything you've done, but because you trusted Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross on your behalf. And the way you're saved is by calling upon the name of the Lord and expressing your faith in God, trusting him and following him. He's saying as a result of that, we have peace with God. No more uh, anger that God has on our behalf, but we have peace with God. We're made alive to God. We're released from the slavery of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. There's now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. God has given us his spirit, which brings life to our old flesh, he has made us children of God, adopted us, taken away that orphan spirit, and then he has promised us that we will have ultimate glory someday with him. And in that light, look what he says in Romans eight twenty-eight and 30. He says, And we know, how do we know because of eight chapters of good theology? We know that for those who love God and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And to those whom he predestined, he also called. And to those he called, he also justified. And those he he justified, he also glorified. So he's continued to build this case. When we think about all that God has done for us, we have to believe, based upon what God has done in the past, that God is working all things together for our good. And then he says this, What then shall we say to these things? Those two words, these things, are going to become really important. What do we say to these things? Well, what are these things? These things are the eight chapters of truth about what God has done for us. He saved us. He redeemed us. He purchased us. He made us alive. He made us children. He brought us into the family. We're no longer orphans. There's no condemnation. God's not angry with us. What do we say to all of these things? We say this. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's building this logic. Wait a minute. God didn't spare his son. So he's going to give us everything. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who raised from the dead. He is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us? Now look closely at Romans eight thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Now listen to me real quickly. Second Corinthians chapter eleven tells us. That every single one of those things listed in verse 35 are things that Paul as a believer and apostle of Jesus Christ went through in his life. Paul went through tribulation and distress and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. So all of these things, walking with God, faithful, planting churches, leading people to Christ, writing to the churches, going on missionary journeys, all of this happened to him. And I have to wonder if Paul, trying to process this in his own mind, like all of us have to, was thinking about Psalm 44. God, I know all the great stuff you did for them and you've done some great things for me, but God, I'm suffering and I'm persecuted and I have endured famine and persecution, nakedness and the sword, and I don't know how to process these things. What do I do? Because I just got done telling these people how great you are and then my life just kind of stinks. I'm suffering a lot. And the reason I think that Paul, in the midst of his persecution and suffering, was thinking about the confusion of Psalm 44 is because in the next verse, he quotes it. Look at the next verse of Romans 8. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's... That's Psalm 44. And what we realize here is that what Paul is doing is exactly what we were told to do in Psalm 42 and 43 last week. Paul is preaching to himself. Paul is reminding himself in the midst of the famine, the persecution, the nakedness, the sword, all of that. He's reminding himself of the truth so that he might not fall into the confusion of Psalm 44. At some point in the midst of his suffering, Paul turned to Psalm 44 and he took a verse. And he said, that verse is is talking about us. He said, for your sake, we, the we of Psalm 44 is us, believers. We're being killed all day long. We're rejected as sheep to be slaughtered. So when we come into those moments, when all these things are reality in our life, does that mean God is against us? Verse 37. No. He said right there. No, it doesn't mean that. In all, listen to these two words, these things, there they are again. So he used these things in verse 31, talking about all of the truth of who we are in Christ. Then he says, in all these things, what are the these things? The these things are tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. What do we do with these things? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, how are you sure, Paul, because of everything I just taught you? because good theology of the gospel, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in Romans 8, Paul says, I want to show you what to do with these things. All of the Psalm 44 things. And he says, when you, when you find yourself experiencing the Psalm 44 things in your life, Romans 8 tells you how to process this. What Paul tells us is, first of all, that these things shouldn't be a surprise to you. These things are an inevitable part of your life. I, I found myself completely shocked when, Psalm, when Paul pulls this verse out of Psalm 44 and says, that's us. We are the people of Psalm 44. He says this. We are being killed all day long. And regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says all of this stuff is happening. Tribulation, distress. As it is written. In other words. This, this is us. This is, our, this is our life. We endure these kind of things in this life. Life in a broken world means that these things are gonna be reality for us. This is exactly why in 1 Peter 4, 12, Peter says this, stop being surprised by the fiery ordeal among you as if something strange were happening to you. You think one of the things that throws us off the most is some of you might heard a version of the gospel, which is not in fact the gospel at all, that if you give your life to Jesus, you avoid all of these things. So Paul, in attempts to put together a good theology of the gospel, has said to you that these things will be a reality in your life as a believer in a broken world. That they're inevitable. But he also says that these things don't mean that God is against us. That when those things happen, they are a reality, but you do not have to think that God is against us. Why? Because we know who God is, and we know who he has made us. That all these things are a reality, and they don't mean God is against us. They actually Show us that God is for us and we will prevail in them. He says, no, they don't mean God is against us, verse 37. They mean that this, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. That word more than conquerors means to be an overwhelming conqueror. Meaning this. Is that what God does through the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he takes every one of the inevitable issues in your life, all of the suffering, all of the distress, and he ensures because you are his and he has brought you to himself and he has given his son for you, that every single one of those things work together for your good and for his glory. He is working in all of those things. How do I know that? Because he did not spare his only son you got to get a better logic. If he didn't spare his son and he saved you and made you his own, he's not going to leave you in this moment. These moments are God orchestrating your life in such a way that he can do something new and fresh and better with them so that the other end of them, you're better than you were before them. And you are certain of that because the God who did not spare his only son is ensuring ensuring that if he saves you, he's gonna sanctify you and bring you safely home. And the foundation of all of it, I love how a Bible just kind of reads like this because the foundation holding all of that up is the unchanging love of God for his children. Because it says this, I'm sure, he hadn't talked about love yet, but he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor anything present, height, depth, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's so interesting that Paul roots all of this in love in order to give us just a better theology. A theology that says this, that if God did not spare his only son, then he loves me. And when I come into a relationship with him by faith, he has made a covenant with me that cannot be broken. He has promised that he will always be for me. He will never be against me. He will love me and nothing can separate me from that love. And as sure as he saved me, just as sure in this life, he will take everything in my life and turn it for good in his glory and he will bring me safely home. And it's all rooted the covenant love of God for you. And Did you by any chance happen to notice the last word of Psalm 44? It's love. So here he is on his face and he says this, rise up and come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. I love this. Here he is on the ground before God and the only thing he's holding on to is The steadfast love of the Lord. God, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And Romans 8 says this, God will save you for the sake of his steadfast love. It is impossible for him to do anything other than ensure that he does everything for your good and his glory until he takes you home. Why? Because he has made a covenant with you, a covenant of steadfast love. So what do we do in those seasons? What we do in those seasons is get a good hold of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we do in those seasons is we take the book of Romans and we preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind ourselves of who we are in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And what we hold on to in every single season is a good theology of the gospel. And if you don't have that, you've got nothing to hold on to. If you have never trusted Christ, if you're not confident you have a relationship with him, in these seasons you will be crushed because you have nothing to hold on to. Some of you have the gospel, but you've been confused in these seasons because you have not thought rightly and correctly about who you are as a child of God. And what God is saying to you this morning is think more carefully about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sing it, keep preaching it to yourself. Every day go back to it. It is not simply the message that saves you. It is the message that sustains you that you will never be sustained without a deeply rooted belief in what Christ has done for you. If he did not spare his own son, he will not lose you. So we hold on in those moments to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.